Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a wonderful 80th edition for you. We interviewed Charles Morgan, the author of the recently published 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. I know that's right up Jeff's alley. And we have our usual bevy of excellent numismatic content. Of course it's up my alley. It's a book, it's world coins, and it's modern. That's my focus. Of course, we're going to get into that whole definition of what modern is. But otherwise, our discussion this week is really going to be focused on something fairly recently. The 1990s is in the news quite a bit. We'll save that, though, for you in just a bit. If you enjoy this uh, podcast, if you've enjoyed any of our previous podcasts, remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. Though I'd like to add a little bit of an addendum to the plug this week, Jeff, and also add that if you enjoy the podcast and if you enjoy other numismatic podcasts, you might consider subscribing to CoinWorld, uh, to the print edition, because I know that for me in my sort of collecting journey, CoinWorld was a pretty big influence because that was kind of my main exposure to numismatics before I got involved in the industry professionally. And it can be really valuable. So if you enjoy the podcast, you might also consider subscribing to our print publication. Yeah, and, and of course, there's a digital version as well. Why would somebody subscribe? I mean, I think any number of reasons. You know, some of the most talented numismatic writers working today contribute to CoinWorld or are on the editing staff of CoinWorld. And Chris and, and I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's pros and then there's there's Jeff and I um, batting cleanup. So you can also hear our voices in print. I don't know how different my spoken word is from my uh, from my written stuff. I, I imagine that the things that I say are probably a little bit less polished than the things that I write. But you can not only like, read Jeff's work and my work, you can read all of our colleagues, uh, a couple of whom we've had in the podcast. We had our editor, Bill. We had uh, Paul, who has done decades worth of numismatic reporting. Former editor, Beth Deicher. Yep, former editor Beth Deicher. Art Friedberg contributes a lot of paper money articles. Um, and, and, so, and world stuff, too. So, yeah, he's... Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah no, he, he does a range of things. So it's also a good way... Subscribing to a publication of any kind. I mean, and we, you know, we're pushing coin world here, but subscribing to numismatic publications can be really valuable if they're well done because it can show you the extent of the horizon. You know, what's out there, what you can collect. You might see something new. So it also introduces you in some cases to the upper echelons of the hobby. You know, reading auction coverage can be really valuable because you learn about major sales. You start to learn the names of major players in the hobby and in the industry, both in the present day and historically. There's a lot to be said for it. So as much as we appreciate all of our wonderful uh, listeners from all from six continents, Jeff, we uh, we found out <laughs> we, we looked uh, our podcast metrics, our wonderful editor, Brian Hertel, sent us the podcast metrics. And we were very gratified to see that people are listening from around the world. And if you are listening from around the world outside of the United States, please keep on listening and, uh, and reach out to us. We would love to hear from you to get a sort of international perspective on the show that we host every week. 
Absolutely. So let's get to the show for this week. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, this week, we're, we're going to go back in time just a little bit for our This Week in History. We always like to explore the highways and byways of numismatics in the past to really to tie into, you know, kind of get an idea of um, sometimes there, there's common threads that echo throughout history. So what was going on This Week in History? Well, let's go to October 6, 1992. That was the day that Congress authorized the Special Olympics commemorative silver dollar. I said we were going to be in the 90s. This is the first part of that. This coin would come out in 1995, and it was notable for a couple reasons. The design on the obverse shows Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was living at the time. She did not die until 2009, I think it was, as the founder of Special Olympics. Of course, uh, she related to the brothers Kennedy and had done some work philanthropic and otherwise on her uh, of her own right and i believe sergeant shriver there's the tie-in that's how she got her her name but the coin the design was not really loved by collectors i think there was a lot of um comparison or complaint similar to the Susan B. Anthony dollar, which of course was a circulating piece and and the special olympics coin was not it was a commemorative but there's definitely some I don't want to say concern, but people just look at it and go, oh, that's not very flattering. Well, as the story goes, she had her say in the design, so she gave it her stamp of approval, and I guess that's all that matters. But it's interesting. We're going to touch on this later. She was, I believe, the third living person to be depicted on a U.S. coin when that came out. So quite a notable event on a couple levels. It was happening this week back in 1992. No, that's really cool. And I find all of the examples of United States coins with the portraits of people who were living when the coins were struck, there are a handful of examples of them. And we've talked about a couple on the show. And I just find them really fascinating, not only because they were struck, design struck and issued sort of in violation of the 1866 law, but also just because that's, again, as we've discussed on the show before, the idea of having living people on coinage is sort of foreign to us in the United States, because generally speaking, we've had a tradition of not portraying particularly rulers or presidents on uh, living presidents on, on coinage, owing to a whole range of sort of Republican anti-monarchical sentiment. Um, and and, that's small, and that's small R Republican for those thinking we're yeah, getting political yeah. in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Republican in the sort of world historical sense, not in the U.S. partisan sense. I find all those issues of coins depicting living, U.S. coins depicting living people, um, I find all of them really interesting. So it's it's cool that that is our uh, This Week in History. So then let's look at uh, an issue of Coin World from This Week in History for our This Week in Coin World history section. I was surprised and delighted to see what was on the front page of the October 6th, 1997 Coin World. Because it sort of echoes what's happening right now in numismatics. What was the big news that week for Coin World? Well, this was the launch of the Platinum American Eagle. This is the first Platinum American Eagle coin. 
that was debuted in 1997. They first offered a one ounce and a tenth ounce size. The half ounce and quarter ounce sizes would follow. Uh, the one ounce size was denominated or is denominated $100. Beautiful design. But it's interesting because just a, an episode or two ago, we talked about the release of a specific version of the 2020. No, that was Palladium, which is in the Platinum Group. So that's how I'm going to tie it in. Well, in any event, <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that bullion is, is such an important segment of the modern world market, which ties in something we'll be discussing later. You know, this was the first U.S. platinum bullion coin, and that made its debut this week uh, in Coin World 1997. Also on the front cover of that issue was a story about the fact that the U.S. Mint had sold 2,700 dies for commemorative Atlanta Olympic $5 gold half eagles. So every once in a while, the Mint has legally sold dies. They've been defaced, but you know collectors can go buy a die or pair or whatever that was used to strike coins legally. 2,700, that's a, a small, small number. And you think about how many examples of those coins are out there. Only a small number of collectors can own one of those dies. Well, thankfully, there's been other dies issued throughout time and some that entered the market, not through the U.S. Mint, shall we say, but they were sold as scrap. And then the scrap dealer sold, you know, found ways to channel them into the numismatic market. It's funny. I, I just find it odd because earlier today, as we're recording, this, I saw somebody post in a Facebook group the image of their die that they bought at that time. So it was it's rather serendipitous that this is all just coming together. In 1997, we chose that because that was the year Charles Morgan entered U.S. military service. It is, interestingly enough, the year I graduated high school long ago, my gosh, 23 years ago. And around that time, I was... Um, I was subscribing to Coin World and reading Coin World. I don't remember this specific issue, but I certainly, uh, in in retrospect or in hindsight, remember hearing about these events around those times. So it's just we're a blast from the past today. We're going back, hopping the time machine, hopping the DeLorean, go to 1997, and uh, that was what caught my eye. What about you, Chris? Well, it's interesting to hear that you were subscribing to Coin World right around 1997. I know you and you and Charles are actually about the same age. Um, yes, he was born a little earlier in the 1970s than you were, but nonetheless. So, so you were you were graduating high school in 1997. I was a year old, um, <laughs> so I I have I have no recollection of 1997. As always, I'm taking a look at the letters page, and there were uh, two letters that stood out to me. One for fairly obvious reasons, the other because I thought that expresses really nice sentiment that I know Jeff has talked about in the podcast and I absolutely echo. So the first one ties so nicely into our discussion of Eunice Kennedy Shriver's uh, appearance on uh, the dollar coin in 1995. This letter is entitled No One Alive. Amongst the hype during the buildup toward the 50 state commemorative coin program, one comment repeated has been how much Illinois, well, maybe only some people there, would like to see Michael Jordan on their coin. Oh, no! Exclamation point. Could that be a Illinois. 23 cent coin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. The letter continues. Oh, no. Illinois, the state, has hosted any number of events important to our nation's development, but they don't include an athlete who happens to play there only because the owner of a professional team pays enough to make him want to. Please 
Throughout this coinage program, let no coin bear the likeness of any living individual from Scott Bryan in Apple Valley, California. So the tie in there is obvious, right? We were talking about how Eunice Kennedy Shriver appeared on the Special Olympic silver dollar in 1995, despite the fact that she was very much alive at that time. And also, it's interesting, Illinois State Quarter ended up having Lincoln on it along with the Chicago skyline. So there, there was no worries about the issue of Michael Jordan appearing on a quarter that did not end up coming to pass. So the other letter is entitled Help a Library. And I, I thought that this letter was really nice. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to share it. And it reads, about four years ago, it was brought to the attention of our coin club that the numismatic section of our public library was in need of newer material. After some discussion, we formed a committee and made a visit to the local facility. It became quite apparent that very little literature in the field had been acquired for a number of years. Our club had made several book donations way back in the 1960s and early 1970s, but few had been added since. It was clear to us that our community needed something more current. The community reported on the situation at the next club meeting. After some discussion, there is a suggestion that we use some of our club's funds to purchase new numismatic books on a regular basis to update our library selection. There is now so much excellent material covering all diverse fields of the hobby. What better use for some of the local club's funds than to put it back into our own community? A member coin dealer volunteered to furnish the club any books we desire at his wholesale cost. After clearing it with the public library, we made our first purchase and donation of numismatic literature. Since then, we have continued to entertain suggestions from our members on various book titles. In just four years' time, our club has made an an accumulative donation exceeding $400 worth of books and videos. We now believe our public library's numismatic section is really beginning to take shape. Why not ask your local coin club to consider updating the numismatic section of your public library? Even donating a year's subscription to a coin collector's publication would be a good start. In this way, any members of your community can have access to this information whenever it is needed. This was written by Jerry Swanson from Rochester, Minnesota. And I like that letter for a number of reasons. The first is that I just happen to love public libraries. My my mother worked for a number of years as a public librarian. I think public libraries are some of our most valuable public institutions. And Jeff, you know, your collecting journey began in a public, really in a meaningful sense, began in a public library. Yep. So I love the idea of a local coin club doing something to help a small town, a local town, or, um, you know, a locality. And, and more than that, I think that that's a wonderful way that numismatics can build community in the sense that, you know, reading Coin World every day, you know, you hear about national numismatic stories, and those are really important. And Coin World's a wonderful publication, as we discussed at the top of the show. But I think it's also important for people to kind of gather socially around their shared interest. And I like the idea of, of trying to enrich the lives of people in the community, even if those people don't become numismatists. If you just expose them through the library or through your local club, if the club has an event that's open to the public, you know, not only might you make a new collector or two, if someone is really engaged by what it is that you or your club shares, but they might just think about their money a little bit more seriously. And as we talk about on the podcast, one of my big goals with this podcast and, and in my sort of professional numismatic life is to make money, make cash, something that people think about. You know, I talk about how Michael O'Malley describes money as something unthought. Well, this might make it something thought of, something that people actively think about. And, so, and, and public libraries really are a great place to reach people where they are, meet people where they are. I know the Shelby County Coin Club here in Ohio has used the library community room as a place to offer appraisals. They've had certain members who are expert that they've 
these people have donated their time and expertise to offer non-binding verbal appraisals. There's always the option later for folks to, you know, hey, you know, if you if you do want to sell this here, here are these folks. It's a way to serve the community, to reach the community, to communicate to the community that the club exists. So, you know, it, it does some good and also lets people know that, hey, this organization does exist if you do have a mutual interest. And yes, as you know, I can credit or blame the Daniel Boone branch <laughs> of the St. Louis County Library for exposing me to Coin World and getting hooked that way. And right now, it's, it's interesting. I was just on our local public library website right before the show, trying to get a book and reserving the book. And uh, you know, thankfully, um, our library here is back open. You know, I'm not. Most people aren't lingering that sort of thing. There are time limits and other things, but you know, it's it's a great a great place to be. I think we discussed this sort of with the blind coin collector way back and early in our uh, podcast journey. One of the ways, one of the things that people do to reach the community is is put displays on exhibit at libraries. I've seen that actually at the, back home in the Daniel Boone branch. Different organizations in the community can bring articles in and have a little mini exhibit for a month or two. That's certainly something that clubs could do. You could get local trade tokens. You could get national bank notes from the town, wherever you are. It is interesting to note this reader's comment about providing literature for libraries. That's something that the Central States Numismatic Society used to do. And uh, I think that has gone the, um, the way of the dodo, probably with the death of Ray Lockwood a few years ago. Ray was the driving force education director, and they also had a, um, a numismatic author grant program that he was under his stewardship, if you will. And uh, both of those things have gone by the wayside. And I, and I understand one of the I guess, concerns with the central states program for libraries is, you know, this stuff, libraries are always changing their stock. They're having book sales every year, this and that. The books might not have a permanence or a, a long term footprint. But I think even, even if you put uh, a red book, even if you put, which I would have to think there's many libraries already get, but even if they got uh, the standard catalog of world coins from 1901 to 2000 as sort of the basic offering, that's something that while it's updated every year, the library wouldn't necessarily need to have a new one, but every two or three years. So I, I couldn't imagine that the library would want to get rid of that. Obviously, I love that this program and this idea exist. And I certainly would say, by all means, if Coin World is not in your local library, if you're in a local club, please, <laughs> to echo your earlier statement, please do uh, subscribe and, and get that out there to folks. But it's one thing to put a generalist publication like Coin World or a book like the Red Book or the Standard Catalog of World Coins. That's going to have more impact and a greater reach than, you know, the Franklin half dollar die varieties from 1948. You know, that that's you, you don't want to be too esoteric. You don't I want you to support numismatic authors as you can, but be strategic in that there's a handful of things that are going to have a general uh, reach. Hey, making the grade uh, published by Amos Press or Amos Media, the Coin World Almanac, those are general publications that could have utility to a broader range of folks, but narrowing into a specific series, I wouldn't do that because that's not 
you know, you're not going to have as good of a reach with that and you want to make as much bang for your buck for your dollar. The only exception I would draw, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do think that, you know, as interesting as it would be for people to investigate Van Allen and Malice's catalog of Morgan Dollar and Peace Dollar varieties, yeah, I think you're right that that might be, particularly for beginners, pretty esoteric. The only exception, though, that I would take with that, or the only, the only thing I would add to that, would be to say that local numismatic items and catalogs of local tokens or script, which many of which exist. I mean, you know, there are volumes describing tokens and script issued by specific states or, for example, Great Depression script that was issued uh, by particular states or localities, tax tokens. There's a whole range of more localized numismatic material that if you wanted to provide reference volumes on the tokens struck in a particular town or in your state, you might consider doing that because sure. because then someone who might have some of that material and might not know what to do with it could be able to go in there and learn a little bit more. And also, in my experience, limited as it is, people generally respond better to things if they have some kind of geographic reference point. Like if you can say, hey, you know, this store used to operate on the corner of Lincoln and Washington streets, just to pick two generic street names, uh, and, you know, in this town, you know, people know what you're talking about. They know where that is. And so if they can kind of visualize it, then I think that that can really help people engage with it. There's, you know, the idea of historical imagination is something that's really important for historians to be able to sort of visualize the time you're talking about and visualize the material that you're discussing and how it might have been used. So I agree with you that specialized volumes might not be the most helpful for a public library, but specialized volumes dedicated to local tokens or script could be tremendously valuable. Now, that is one case where you are absolutely right. And I want to test you to find out if you're absolutely right. And then you can tell me about the book you're reading, which this all, this all works together any which way we slice it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Last episode, I talked about the new Nuestra Señora de Atocha, one of my favorite numismatic topics because of the imprint early on in my numismatic and interest in, in that from way back. So Mel Fisher was the man who, the visionary who sought to discover the treasure and led the team of folks that eventually did find the treasure. And there was a phrase that Mel said repeatedly to the team members as they continued their years-long search. So that was the trivia question. It's not really numismatic in the sense of I'm not asking for a, you know, how many double dies, this, that, or the other, but I thought it's a message of hope and we all need hope right now. So do you know Certainly. what that message was? I do not. I, I, I hoped that I would and I didn't resort to Google. So I, I do not know actually, Jeff, what okay. is it? Today's the day. Three words, today's the day. And that eternal sense of optimism and hope that the treasure would be imminently found is what kept them going for, I want to say 13 years. I forget now, but it was quite a while. So today's the day. Today's the day you're going to find a 1909 SVDB in, in change, right? Maybe <laughs> would, would that we, you were so lucky. And if you were that lucky and it's um, authenticated, let us know. We should have a story about it. But uh, yeah, that, that'd be really cool. <laughs> and Chuck Daughtry would be happy to hear about it too. Although I guess you'd be, if you wanted to help him out, you'd have to be roll hunting. But yes. Still. Yeah. So, uh, but, so today's the day. I thought that was just, uh, it was fun, different. Um, yeah, we no, we no, won't that, go off really the rails cool. like that too much, but, but that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I enjoyed that. That was, that was fun. So I made mention earlier to Eunice Kennedy Shriver as being the third person to appear 
on U.S. coinage while living, third living person. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And I didn't want you to name the the other instances because because it has to do with the trivia question. Because and it now that is the trivia question. What were <laughs> now, the, this? I actually do know. I know, but you're not, I should know. You're not going to answer it right now. The, the answer Certainly comes not. in a week. And and if take all the tension out of it. If yes, if you don't know, then you can listen to some earlier episodes. We've talked about some of the designers of these coins. We've talked about the issuance around some of these coins. So just, you know, if you don't know, don't go to Google. Just spend, you know, well, there's 79 previous episodes. So spend roughly 82 hours of your time listening to every Coin World podcast, and you will be able to answer <laughs> this question next week when oh, we God. provide it's, the it, answer. It's got to be more than it's got to be more than 82. I mean, we've gone over an hour for so many of them. Uh, yeah, I'm but, sure. But 15, I'm, it's, 15, it's be. but 15 minutes times four. Yeah. So I, I'm betting it's 82, 82 to 84 hours. But anyway, I'd be surprised if it was under 90. Um, so <laughs> I, there you go. We, we are long winded, but I don't think that's. Uh, necessarily you know uh, anyway it doesn't matter uh because so, you know some listener can and don't actually do this because it would take you a while some listener can go and uh and add uh hey, and add up the, the run times of all the podcasts three, and tell us how long we've been talking you, you can have a coin rolled podcast marathon for three and a half days you know if if you, you have go. nothing better to do God, so that that would be a magnificent torture technique for someone to strap into a chair and be like, all right, <laughs> you're doing this for four days or whatever. So um, anyway, so you're going to have that answer, Chris. You're going to give the answer to the listeners and to me next episode. But now yes. you're going to tell me what uh, go to your bookshelf and pull something out. Tell me why I should uh, be interested in it. Why should maybe a local coin club donate that to the local library? A local coin club should absolutely consider donating this book to their local library because it has a tremendous amount of very practical information and advice that if people who think they found a 1913 Liberty Head nickel want this information, this book might um, might steer them in the right direction. The book I, I'm reading is Numismatic Forgery by Charles M. Larson. It's a really quite an interesting book that sort of starts from the premise that Coin forging is, you know, one of the world's oldest professions, if not the oldest profession. Among the older professions, as long as we've had money, there have been people trying to, you know, create fake money to to make themselves wealthier or to to fool people. And Larson, over a, the course of his career, had actually gotten to know a couple of prominent coin forgers. He had worked in a prison in Utah, and he had uh, come into contact with a couple of major forgers. And and talking to them, combined with his own mechanical skills gave him the insight to write this book where he basically analyzes common techniques of forgery, how effective they are, which kinds of coins they are effective at forging, and how people can sort of be on their guard against it. And he goes into tremendously detailed technical descriptions of the equipment and the production process. And truthfully, the book is disconcerting in a way, and it should be disconcerting to anyone who reads it because forgers, if they're talented, if they have mechanical skills, and if they know what they're doing, can produce very, very convincing forgeries. And Larson describes at length the process that people go through to do it. And in some cases, it's it's frighteningly cheap that, you know, the materials that you would need to produce convincing forgeries really won't run you all that much money. And so if you're willing to put in the time to learn how to forge properly, and if you have enough money to invest in the basic equipment, you can actually do quite a bit. What I'm hearing from you is you're suggesting our listeners take up a life of crime. All right. And, no, and, and in fact, <laughs> Larson, Larson, is very, <laughs> Larson is very clear and very emphatic that this is 
is not a how-to guide. This is not intended to teach people how to forge coins. It's intended to describe the process to arm collectors to give collectors the information they need to not be duped. He is, you know, read the introduction. He is very clear okay, about that. Okay, I do have that on my bookshelf. I will read the introduction. It's really um, good. And and it's interestingly, really, it, it, this is very, very good. This dovetails nicely with uh, an earlier interview, Winston Zach, who explored yes. counterfeits. So there's a nice body of literature exploring the, the variety of items out there that really collectors need to be familiar with, lest they succumb to a problem issue and, and um, you know, buy something that's not legitimate. I'll say this. The other sort of selling point for the book is that it describes the minting process for a whole bunch of different kinds of coins in a lot of detail. So if there are any collectors out there who might understand that, you know, coin blanks or dies are fed into a hammer and anvil die, like we talked about in our um, old, our discontinued segment, uh, Numismatic Term of the Week, which I actually, I hope to revive in some form at some point. But if any of our listeners aren't familiar with the minting process in a lot of depth. The book actually, in describing the steps that a forger has to take, Larson actually describes the minting process for a number of different kinds of coins really well. And I found his his explanations of the different terms and, and of the minting process were accessible. So anyone who wants to not only be able to possibly get ahead of a forger or or learn how to spot forgeries more effectively, or who just wants to learn about the minting process. It's a very, very good book that I thoroughly enjoyed reading. Awesome. And I would uh, second that recommendation. So go find that book wherever you can. But in the meantime, you're going to want to sit back and listen to Chris and I interview Charles Morgan. He becomes the second guest to make a, uh, a second appearance Beth Deicher is the other guest who's been on the show twice now, but this time we're talking to him about his new book, Top 100 Modern World Coins. We hope you find something exciting and interesting to collect and and certainly learn from the interview. Here it is. Jeff and I are very lucky today to be joined by Charles Morgan, editor of CoinWeek.com and a co-author of the new 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. Thanks so much for joining us again, Charles. Hey, thank you, guys. So listeners might be familiar with the other books in Whitman's 100 Greatest series. They've done a number on on ancient coins, on U.S. coins. What inspired you to take on the 100 Greatest Modern World Coins? Well, actually, it's it's interesting because um, the reason I'm even in the industry at all is uh, because uh, I have this like cockamamie idea to write a book for Whitman. This was like before I had done anything and they came back to me and they're like, no, we don't, we don't think anybody wants that book, my idea. And so as I sort of like developed like a professional reputation, like uh, I became friends with Dennis Tucker and at a certain point they were like, well, we want to do something with Charles. And uh, so he reached out to me and we were sort of banding about ideas and I had already had some other things in, in the hopper that I was working on, but I didn't think any of them were like as commercially viable as this idea, which is something I hadn't worked on before uh, at all. And uh, so I, I basically gave a uh, concept to uh, Dennis saying, well, why don't we write a, a book about modern world coins for the 100 Greatest series? And at the time, you know, I was, as we were writing it, and I had spoken to um, dealers and people in the industry, they were very excited because when I told them we were going to do a book on modern world coins, they were thinking about all the Perth Mint coins they could sell if I just included them into the uh, list. 
And I had to sort of break the news to them that I wasn't really interested in what I would consider postmodern or hypermodern, like the, these types of not intended for circulation coins that are being made now for collectors, that I was actually thinking about coins of the 20th century that, that really, many of them really were coins that were used. And so as we were developing the list, the first thing that, that came to mind for me was that in a way how like woefully unprepared I was to do this because, uh, you know, modernism doesn't really happen to every country at the same time. And when we think about like modern U.S. coins, I, I don't know if there's like a firm and hard date. It used to be like anything 20th century was modern. And now I think you get to the point where people consider like Mercury Dimes and walking livery halves and, and the pre-33 gold to be classic in a way. So we settled on sort of a, you might call it an eccentric cutoff date of 1900 but to start. But I felt that it would be important to tell the story of the 20th century and world coins. And so that's, that's sort of what we set out to do. And we came up with a list ourselves. I didn't go out to a bunch of experts. I did seek some advice. Ivan from uh, Goldberg's uh, gave me his insights. Uh, and I asked maybe a handful of other people. But more often than not, I found that most of the lists and the, sort, the things that I got from people who I trusted were very closely aligned with what we had already kind of figured out. Then the question is just how do you order it? And we made our best effort, realizing that usually lists are kind of BS anyway. We were trying to give our, our best effort to uh, just to tell the story about 100 coins or sets of coins that don't often get talked about enough in English, uh, giving a little bit more insight than what you would find in your typical auction catalog. Hopefully we succeeded. I'm interested to hear you say that lists are BS, and I could envision some of the criticisms that you might make, but what limitations do you find in a top 100 list? And how did you sort of write around those as you compose the list for the book? Well, I think the thing is, is that, you know, like you can take it out outside of even coins. I mean, if somebody has a list of the top 100 movies of all time, I mean, how valid is it? You know, um, it's inevitably incomplete. Yeah, it sort of relies on your personal taste. I mean, getting to the coin thing, not talking about movies, but, you know, there, there are coins that on a personal level, I think we connect with, you know, and when you get to coins, so I mean, coins have personal meaning for, for the collector. And sometimes that means that you get really passionate about something and you feel like this is the reason why you collect, or this is, uh, you may say that I think the series is more important than that series. I, I don't know if you can really like lock something down. And so when we started to set out, like, you know, what were our ideals for greatness? You know, we were looking for, you know, rarity was one, but it was not the overriding one. The artistic style certainly is important. The historical imports, either of the issue or of the coin in the context of when it was released. And so we were trying to just make a, you know, juggle these things and, and, and realizing that everything was a trade-off. You know, kind of like how when you look at an MS-65 coin, you uh, internalize what that means for you. It may mean something different to somebody else. It's always a give and take between different factors. And not to overly bore or overly complicate it, but since uh, we felt like we were our best advocates for our idea, having consensus on what was the 100 greatest 
we felt would like sort of rob it of the passion that we wanted to put into it. So that's sort of the long winded thing is we're total autocrats and we don't listen to anybody. So that's <laughs> a, that's how we got the list. So I'm curious after getting the book and looking at it, you use your sensibilities and, and opinions to shape the list. I noticed right away that eight of the first 20 were Asian coins, uh, seven of which were Chinese. There doesn't seem to be, there's just a handful of coins from Africa, mostly from South Africa, very few from Central and South America. What kind of effort was there at balancing the list between eras, regions, metals? I mean, most of the stuff, silver and gold, I mean, there's a there's a couple copper, nickel, and you know, obviously number 100, the Euro set we'll talk about later, that's all base metal. What were these, the competing thoughts regarding, or the thoughts regarding those competing um, weights or categories? So that's actually very interesting. In fact, actually, if you go to the appendix of the book, you'll see we sort of give away a little bit of a hint in how we developed our list. Because in the appendix, we have like greatest coins by country. And in that list, you'll see in bold the coins that actually make the book. And in regular font, you'll see the coins from different countries that did make the list. And that... Oh, yes. You're right. And so in the example in that, you know, you'll see that there are coins from countries that aren't in the list, like El Salvador and Eritrea and other places yep. like that. And that's a great question, because the first thing we were trying to do is we were trying to make sure we gave proper representation to every country. And one of the things we ended up doing, which sounds really kind of corny in a way, is like we went through the Krause catalog the 1901 to 2000 or whatever that was there, or 19, no, was it uh, 1900 yeah. to 1999 or whatever? Yeah, it's, 19, it's 1901 to 2000. Yeah, yeah. So we, we went through that book and we went through every single country. I compiled a list of like coins that were rare, significant, and you know, key dates, things like that for every single country. And it was quite a lengthy list. And then after I had that list, I went through the process of like kind of digging around, poking around to see if there was a story to tell about any of those coins. So unfortunately, I think the story of like African coins in the 20th century or the story of uh, some of the, the South American coins of the 20th century just aren't as prominent as the coins of the British Empire or the warlord period, if you will, of, of China or the great, some of the great European coins, or, or even some of the ignoble coinage of uh, failed regimes and the colonial powers of de decay. But we certainly considered it, and we were going through as, as many permutations of how to devise the list as possible, which is why we kept that appendix in there. That is helpful. Uh, another thing to, to think about, is that when we're talking about some of the coins that ended up making it into this book, like the uh, Ludd's Ghetto coinage, which I think has an especially poignant narrative. Oh, absolutely. So nobody would ever really consider that to be a great coin in the artistic side. Or, of course, you know, the Jewish ghetto in uh, Poland during the Holocaust is not exactly a great place to be. But to us, like, you know, I discovered that coin by reading Primo Levi's The Drowned and the Save when I was in college as an English major. To have something that transcends its physical reality, to have deep-seated symbolic meaning, and also as a numismatist to consider the implication of, like, how even when, like, mankind is tearing itself apart, that there's still money 
which is kind of a profound thing to think about, makes that a great coin. So we end up putting things like that. We mentioned the Euro set. Even even the Euro set, I think there's a, a greatness and just the awesome power that that idea had, as we called it, sort of the destroyer of worlds. When those coins came into existence, it knocked out all of these national coinages, which had a long history. Yeah, I mean, you you said goodbye to the Fennig and the Mark and the Lear, and all these things were wiped away in an instant, overnight, for these twelve different countries initially. <laughs> right. So, I mean, and that's like that's power, you know, when you're able to to wipe those things out. Nobody really considers maybe would consider the 1967 Krugerrand to be a great coin, you know, because the Krugerrand sort of became a generic gold bullion coin in the global market. But when you consider the implication of what a state meant creating a gold bullion coin was for gold investors and how that reshaped the minting industry, not just in South Africa, but in Canada and in the United States and Britain and elsewhere. That was quite an important moment in numismatic history. Yeah, where would the market today be without that evolution and that development? One of the things that jumps out at me, if I can make what might be a, I don't want to say a controversial statement, but this is not a coin book. You hit on this earlier uh, in, in your answer to that last question. This is a history book of the 20th century. Uh, particularly. And you talked about there not being the stories maybe with the African coins, but you did find stories for all of these. Which ones of these were the most challenging to research, most rewarding? Can you explore the the sort of, take us on that journey as well? Speaking for the narratives that I know I personally wrote, which was probably a little more than half of them, because, you know, Hubert was writing this too. And I kind of stuck him with a lot of the uh, Chinese coins, because uh, he studied Chinese in uh, college. Ah. I believe some of the Chinese narratives are very difficult to do, especially since I don't know for sure, as, as much as Chinese coins have been lucrative for American auction houses and coin dealers, I don't know how much the American numismatic community really understands about Chinese culture or the context of some of these coins. In fact, I've had conversations with Michael Chu about a number of these like very expensive coins that have come to auction and he's very skeptical about uh, some of them thinking that they were you know copies or whatever and i'm willing to really get into the politics of all that because uh, i wouldn't know and uh, i don't know if you weren't there if you would know for sure but the asian market especially the chinese market for numismatics was one of the biggest growth areas in the numismatic hobby in the world. And I felt like it was definitely important to represent the most important coins from China, not just the classic coins. I mean, the pandas in there too, the 82 panda set. Yep. I felt also that as far as difficult things to write about, I think it's, it's very difficult being an American and putting your own aesthetics of beauty and importance and cultural things, cultural like interpretations on somebody else's culture. I think the interesting thing, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I would think it would be easier to write this book about American coins because we are qualified, I think more qualified to talk about our own culture than I would be qualified to sit here and talk, talk to you about Romanian culture. 
So I understood going into this that it was going to be from a perspective of how an American, even a pretty well-read American, would see the, the world. And I find that, like, I, I was really observant of that because I read a lot of Europeans write about America, American numismatics, and many of the obvious things that they get wrong. And I was trying to avoid that as much as possible. But it was white knuckle terror putting this together because I, I was I was never sure like if we would ever uh, release a book that we wouldn't get like, you know, a lot of criticism about. So that's, I guess, being a writer for you. I can absolutely understand that uh, that concern. And I also appreciate your reference to uh, to Primo Levi. Um, survival in Auschwitz slash if, if this is a man uh, is one of the more powerful books I've ever read. Uh, so I appreciate your reference to that. In regards to the sort of cultural challenge that you're talking about, or the challenge of cultural interpretation, did any of the coins that you covered in the book present a particular challenge to research, either from a numismatic or cultural perspective? I'll go back to the Chinese issues. You have things like the Romania six-coin gold set. You know, when Whitman asked us to do this book, they were, they were basically said, you know, and the, the top 10 coins, right, like basically two pages and then a page for the next, like, set of coins. And then once you get, like, halfway through the book, you know, like little small narratives, you know, they were basing this off of the formula that had, six, had garnered success for the other books, and we're, we're getting like halfway through the book and we're writing like two page narratives sometimes because there's just so much to flesh out. But you have things like, you know, the Romania six coin gold set, which is a really beautiful coin set. And once you really break down the symbolism of what was going on in the coins, it was really the story about a very sort of a terrible king that has to has to try to reclaim his power through, I don't know how else to describe it, but maybe like a coup or something like that after he's been in exile. And then his plane, that's the plane that's carrying him and his conspirators sort of like breaks down and they have to land it in the far, a farm field somewhere. And so the coin has a picture of like the, you basically one of the coins has this image of a propeller or a plane propeller and the king and this woman in a field and all of this stuff. And you sit there and you're like, you know, it's like a beautiful piece of numismatic art. And at the same time, you're like, this is like the most cornball thing like ever commemorated on a coin. And it, and it was meant to mark like, you know, like this anniversary of his reign. And then it basically comes out like at the cusp of him being overthrown again. <laughs> and so one of the things that made it maybe great or whatever, uh, if you call it great, uh, is... Uh, that it commemorated a bad king and a moment of very premature victory right before another failure. And so, you know, to me, like, it's just stuff like that. Like, I wish I could tell it from a Romanian's perspective. I wish I really knew what they felt about it. Uh, instead, I just had to imagine, you know, what that would have what that would have been like. And then I also understood, though, that I was writing this for an American, primarily an American audience. And so, uh, I guess I, I, in that respect, you know, you can forgive yourself from just having a, a sort of an American perspective as you're writing this. I guess one of the things that stood out to me as I look at the list is there seems to be an emphasis on rarity to the, I don't want to say detriment, but to the, um, maybe let, let's go with that, to the detriment of something that can be collectible in its place. And what I mean specifically, let's go to look at um, number 69, the Caballito Peso pattern. 
Now, the Caballito Peso is a fantastic design. I have Alan's book, uh, you quote Alan Shane, in there. It is a marquee piece of modern numismatics. And it's eminently collectible for the various years that it was issued. But the pattern is not. How can collectors view the list as a starting point while understanding that some of these items the designs are available, but maybe not those specific examples, like the West German 1954 G. It's late in the book, or mid- middle to late in the book, I think. That mark is, I guess the other side of that is, well, any of the other million, hundreds of millions of those that were made are not significantly worthwhile to collect. But certainly, I don't know, when you're talking a design like the Caballito Peso, it is available and collectible, and maybe just only a handful of folks can own that pattern that surfaced with or that Max Keach owned. What about that? How, how do we rectify the balance between making the list represent the rarity, but also then having something to collect. You have the different, you classify every one as, you know, this is difficult, moderate, impossible, all that. I'll stop the uh, filibuster now and let you answer. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair point. And I think, you know, if we ever, uh, we're ever called on to do a second edition, there's always ways to improve how we lay this out. We do think that, you know, the term greatest, you know, and it's a hundred, so it's limited to a hundred pieces. You'd have to have a rationalization why you wouldn't take the most coveted example of a series and leave it out in lieu of, you know, one that you would pick and say, well, you know, you can buy this one. I would make the argument that you just made that the Caballito Peso is an incredible series. It's not a very, it's not a very long series. The pattern may be a stopper for most people, but there are conditionally rare issues. But I would say if I was a collector having an example of a caballito peso would be having one of the great coin series. The West German mark, personally, as sort of subway tokeny as that series <laughs> looks yeah. to me, yeah, I love that series too. And, and part of it is because I feel like that series is the beginning of the redemption story of Germany. Mm. And so like, you know, maybe the, the scarcest one is the one that we chose to, to sort of start to tell the narrative about that and sort of of the, the German, West Germany's like economic miracle of the 1950s. But I would make the case that if a coin had a single issue that was important enough to make it into this series, then any issue from that series is worthwhile to include in your collection of, of world coins because on the merits I think a coin series is part of a whole and each issue plays into that story. So whether you have a type coin or um, a rarity, you're really collecting the same, the sort of the same thing. So I want to go back a little bit. One of the things that jumped out when I first heard the book was in the works, which is a couple of years ago. My first thought goes to what's the number one coin, modern world coin. And I go, 1839, Una and the Lion. Your line of demarcation, 1901, obviously then precludes that, uh, omits that from the list. Uh, It's not eligible. Like I say, this is a history of the 20th century. I know you have to draw a line somewhere, but I was thinking more, we would go back to Industrial Revolution, Bolton and Watt, Birmingham, all that, you know, the late 1780s, 90s, 
1800 period forward. Was that ever considered? Is that something you would change? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I don't know uh, if I would change it. Luna and the Lion is maybe one of the most elegant world coins, period. I don't know if I would change it because like to me, to me, I, I think that as we're now into the, you know, getting almost to the quarter mark of the 21st century, I think modern, the modern world as we understand it and interpret it now doesn't stretch back as far as it used to. Okay. And I think if you were to start in, you know, the industrial revolution, well, that line of demarcation, if, if you apply that to American coinage would mean that everything from 1792 to the present is a modern coin. And I think that it's certainly called for, for somebody to put together, Whitman or whoever, uh, to put together a book of the greatest world coins to start, I would say, you know, after the 1500s and up to this 1900 point or whatever point they want to come up with. Because like those coins have important stories as well. But to a, a reader expecting to understand the history besides or, or the history of these coins and put them in the pocket of modern, I think going back before World War One, but not that far back, going back, you know, at the birth of the modern European state, the modern Chinese state, I think to me, I was thinking about modernity and the terms of the world order as we recognize it. And again, I picked 1900 because Whitman wanted this book done in six months. And I think I delivered it in like 18. And I didn't want to sit there and really just uh, overwhelm myself by trying to tell what I thought would be a cohesive story and tell that story over the course of like 200 or 300 years. And again, that's that's a personal opinion. I, I think, I think it, your question is completely valid. And I think readers may not necessarily agree with the way we took this on. But that is the logic behind it. And um, I thought it would be more important to concentrate on a period of time that was cohesive than to spread it out too far. Yeah, in a way, you could almost do a, you know, 100 greatest series for each century almost and, and start, you know, as far back as anyone wants to start and, and sort of work forward. I can appreciate the need to settle on a, on a particular focus. I mean, that's the way the Krause catalog is. I mean, it's every century. So, I mean, and you're absolutely right. You could do that. Right, right. So that that could be a, a, another set of books at some point. I'm curious, of the 100 coins that did make it onto the list, do you have a favorite? Which one was most enjoyable for you to research? Which one do you consider to be most uh, aesthetically appealing? And which one do you feel is most sort of historically valuable? First of all, I have only a handful of these coins, as I would assume most people would fall in that category. To me, the coin that I'd most want to own <laughs> sure. is the uh, 1975 South Vietnamese 50 Dong. Ah, um, I think I think uh, I think there's a Texas coin dealer that sort of had cornered the market in them, and we had never got on, if you will. Uh, so I've never purchased one. I think that's a that's an important coin for FAO collectors, but for the larger collecting public, you know, maybe not so much. One of my favorite coins was actually the. Uh, 1925 Swiss 100 franc specimen. That, Beautiful um, design. Yeah. A Atlas Numismatics had this coin for a while. James Ricks had it, showed it to me. That coin is just unbelievably cool. Scott Purvis, who uh, is my partner in crime at Coin Week, 
had a the registry set number one ranked collection for Swiss uh, uh, francs. I think for uh, ten and twenty franc uh, gold coins. He had the smaller, you know, the the normal circulating denominations, but he didn't have the hundred franc. But that specimen was on another uh, planet altogether. I always liked the uh, the Velpon too. I always felt that that was like a cool, very rustic <laughs> type of coin. Um, <laughs> But those would be aesthetically, I think, among my favorite. Then I would also say that, you know, a real nice original Maria Theresa Thaler, uh, which we included here, even though it was not a production of the 20th century, but because it was still being circulated in parts of Africa, was in production, I guess, by Italy for a time uh, mm-hmm. under license. I think that to me, those are like my favorite, favorite coins. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the FAO coin because that is, of course, your one of your big collecting areas. Maybe you can do a the definitive book on the FAO series. Something that I think sums this up, this conversation nicely, is something from the book. You say, although earlier you said list or BS, in the book you say, list are conversation starters and not the final word. The beauty of this is that the numismatic hobby is forever evolving and there is no shortage of stories to tell. We would agree, and we thank you for sharing the story of the book and some of these great coins that are in the book. This has been an illuminating and an enjoyable discussion, so thank you again. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. And and as far as stories go, you are an incredible storyteller in the pages of Coin World and the way you understand that when you're writing about numismatics, you're really explaining something more than just this is the mintage and this is what it's worth. And uh, I appreciate that every time I get a chance to read what you're up to. And uh, to you too, Chris, um, very powerful writer in the hobby. And, uh, Chris was great. Many years. Chris yeah. is great. Thank you. Now, I, I now, uh, how much did I owe you for that? I don't. And where do I send the check? Uh-oh. Well, my, I'll, I'll give you my Patreon when we get off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's great. Well, anyway, thanks again, uh, Charles. This was this was a lot of fun, and I know I know our listeners will be interested and might even uh, go pick up the book. It's definitely worth checking out. The 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. Thanks so much again, Charles. No problem. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Charles Morgan. I know that Jeff and I were both very excited to crack into the 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. And it's it's an interesting book and a great list. And we really appreciate Charles for taking the time to speak with us. Gosh, a lot of work went into it. So much work. Not as much work goes into this podcast, but we do try. <laughs> and, and if you appreciate the work that we do and the, the stuff that we say uh, most times every week, we do implore you to subscribe, share with your friends, your enemies, your relatives, your neighbors, whomever, because we do want, this is a big tent hobby. We want as many people to come aboard. But until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the Coinworld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes. Choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.